Welcome to Your Other Mother, Stories of Early Queer Family Making. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, part one of my conversation with the incredible Sammy, please go back and give it a listen. Sammy is an artist from Boston. She was raised by two moms and, like me, loves talking about it. We met six years ago when Sammy was gathering her own stories from young people growing up in queer families. She interviewed me. Since then, we've become dear friends, mostly online, but once gloriously in my grandmother's backyard for a family barbecue. Some things you might want to know about Sammy are that she's white, she's Jewish, she works with teenagers at a creative school, and she makes pottery on the back porch of her triple-decker in the middle of the city. In this episode, Sammy and I talk about the intersection of queerness and Jewishness, the challenges of being a child growing up in a queer family, understanding our own queerness in the context of being raised by queer moms, and so much more. I'm so excited for you to listen. So it's interesting because like, well, we so, seriously, I mean, like when we talked the other day, I was just like making notes because everything you were saying was just like getting the wheels turning. But um, the thing I meant to make sure we talk about is dovetails nicely with what I was doing a couple nights ago, which was rewatching The Birdcage, which I assume you've seen the film The Birdcage, yes. Because The Birdcage was one of the first depictions of a queer family that I remember seeing as a child, you know, because like Armand and Albert are like, raising Armand's son he's really their both their son and something I hadn't really put that much thought about as I was re-watching it the other day is the fact that they're Jewish and it's 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 referenced throughout the film right because it's like in contrast with the conservative family because they're like these you know conservative right-wing Christian parents of of the son's fiance and so it's you know kind of meant to it's meant to like it's it's you know the the, the screenwriters and the director are trying to like kind of play with that but I just it really spoke to what I was thinking about when we talked last time is like a queer sensibility and a Jewish sensibility there's obviously so much to talk about there um, but I, I would love to talk about if you're if you want to share freely just what it how you feel like growing up Jewish and growing up with two moms like how did those two things fit together please share love that um it's funny when you ask me that question on Sunday. Was it Sunday? Mm-hmm. Um, because I, like three times already in that conversation, had been like, oh, this is so relevant to actually being Jewish. And then I was like, well, I won't go into that right now. Um, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So the answer is that I feel like everything is kind of interrelated in that way. And I think one of the big things is like, my family really, really taught me to care about justice in the world. And that feels inseparable, the queerness and the Jewish piece to me, in part because I was raised reformed Jewish, um, which means like we had a female rabbi and it was not particularly conservative. I wrote my confirmation speech about how I didn't believe in God. And my rabbi was like, this is beautiful. Will you read it at Shabbat to this? Oh, amazing. <laughs> right. And so what was valued there was like grappling with questions mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, dogma and um, any sort of regimented faith. And synagogue and Hebrew school was where I learned, was when I was first talking about abortion. It's where I was first talking about like making family and what does that mean and loyalty 
and loyalty in all sorts of ways. Like we talked about, what if you get in a, a fight with a friend or what if this happens in a friendship? Like, how do you grapple with that? And um, so I think it's, I think it's easy for people to look at me and think that I have my progressive sensibilities because my moms are queer and that's 100% a part of it. But I think it's just as much, if not a little bit more because of the Jewish education that I received growing up. And there's this Jewish phrase and concept of tukun olam, repairing the world. And this idea, there's this Jewish saying, teaching, it's like, basically, I'm going to kind of butcher the retelling of it or the translation of it, but you are not required to complete the work, but nor are you given the opportunity to not take part in it. Like you have to do your part to make the world a better place. That's interesting to hear you say that um, you perceive that others ascribe your progressive values to being raised with two moms. Because I don't know, it just, it makes a lot of assumptions. I mean, I think it's, I, I totally see it and I feel similarly, but I do think it's interesting. I mean, I think it's, it's just sort of revealing of like our political life and world. Um, but like, I mean, I don't know for you, but like, I, I know, I, I think I had an attunement to, to justice similarly from a very young age because of, like we talked about last time, just sort of the embodied experience of feeling of difference and feeling and, and recognizing that your family is not, not normative. Right. Um, even if, you know, you're not experiencing like explicit attacks or homophobia or like gay bashing, like you just, you have this embodied sense because of, you know, our social world and the ways in which we like try to exclude and eradicate difference. I think even as children, we had a deeply felt sense of difference. And so I know for me, like it similarly instilled this like deep sense of right and wrong um, of like, you know, treating people with dignity is really important. I just feel like that's kind of the, the key unifying piece. Um, but I'm interested because like, I know at least for me, like my moms, they are, they are very progressive people, like really compassionate people, but like, I am a lot more, like I have a, my, my values are much farther to the left than theirs. And that wasn't because of the way they raised me. I mean, I was probably primed for that because of my rearing, but, um, it does, it is interesting. It's sort of like, it, it assumes a radicality to queerness that I don't necessarily think is inherent. I mean, of course it isn't inherent, right? So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think, um, okay, so when it was 2001 and Massachusetts became the first state to legalize gay marriage. Mm -hmm. I was 12 years old. So from the time that I was about like nine or 10, when I was 11 or 12, everyone was talking about gay marriage, right? Like that was such a formative time for me. And I was the only person in my school that had gay parents. And so I felt very much like the poster child for that movement. And I felt like they were talking about my family on the news every night, right? And there was these heated debates every night on the news of whether or not gay people should get to be married. And I think for anybody who ever listens to this, who didn't grow up in that time, it will feel like, oh, well, maybe people disagreed, but not really. But like, this was the political issue of the time. It was certainly the social political issue yes. of the era, without exception, right? The other major thing, <clears throat> of course, being the Iraq war. 
But these were like the two big things that were happening at the beginning of the 2000s. And um, I felt watching that like, oh, well, I'm obviously pro-gay marriage, which I am, of course, right? Like I get why marriage is important. But I also remember being 10, 11 years old and sitting with my moms watching the news. And one of my moms being like, I don't understand all these gay people wanting to get married. She's like, what is that about? She's like, we don't even have health care. We don't even, we're, we're at this endless war. She was like, what is this about? And that was deeply instilled in me. Mm-hmm. And that's like super left, right? That's like yeah, yeah, super, yeah. super progressive. So I think any sense of larger political systems and their mistreatment and disenfranchisement of whole groups of people. So big systems of bias, certainly about sexism and certainly about homophobia, which in my mind is part of sexism, but sexism is the umbrella of homophobia, came from my parents and did not come from really anywhere else (laughs) other than my parents. Like nobody else was talking to me about that. Mm -hmm. Not in school, not at synagogue, like Mm -hmm. not anywhere. I'm so glad you brought up that point because it is really, I mean, I relate so deeply to your point about feeling like your family was actively being discussed and like, so something a law school colleague of mine said a couple of years ago, which really has stuck with me is that legal dignity can often precede interpersonal dignity, you know, meaning legal recognition of, of the rights of marginalized people can often precipitate or, or help fuel um, you know, the social better treat the better treatment socially of that marginalized group. Not and I think it could also flow the other way, right? right? But I think about it a lot in the context of thinking about the gay marriage debates because it felt like it was just a referendum on queer people's inherent dignity, right? It's like it, it, like I mean, or at least like I mean, I'll speak for myself. Like my that was always my feeling and perception, even though I at the time I didn't have the words to articulate it like that like as a you know, middle schooler and high schooler, like, the incessant debate. I mean, it was, you're so right. It was like, the, it was the political issue. It was like, yeah, war in Iraq and gay marriage. Um, it just like, it just felt like it was, it was just a proxy for like, should gay people be allowed to exist? Are they good or bad? <laughs> really? It's like so simplistic, but that's really how it felt. And so I, for me, it was just like, of course, unbelievably personal. And and I would just, oh my God, I remember in high school, I would just get into like the most virulent debates with my classmates about this because it just like, I obviously had an enormous personal stake. And um, it's just so interesting to think about. I mean, like obviously the issues we're dealing with now with regard to like the treatment of queer and trans people are like equally high, st- I would say they're more high stakes because the backlash is so virulent. Um, and it's very different, but it is like, there's almost like a quaintness to me now thinking about the gay marriage debates because it was just like such a discreet issue. And it was like, um, it was like, yeah, I don't know. It just like, it it almost strikes me as like quaint that like, that's what we were debating, but now we're like trying to literally exterminate trans youth. Right. (laughs) It's like, it's like that, you know, it just, it, it, it almost, there's like this quaintness to it in context. I think that's so interesting because there's like, I, I think at the heart, I think there's two, at least two things at the heart of the quote unquote gay marriage debate. One is, should gay people be allowed to be around children? Mm. And that is one of the oldest 
ugliest yep. stereotypes around particularly gay men, but all gay people, right? You would lose your job if you were a teacher and mm-hmm. people found out that you were gay. You just weren't allowed to be around kids because the assumption of pedophilia specifically, but sexual perversion holistically is so pervasive and continues to be so pervasive. I mean, look at what's happening with drag queens right 100%, now. Right? You 100%. can't be around kids. Yep. What? At the local library performing? Like, it's it's so inane mm-hmm. and so out of touch with reality. But that ugliness persists in our cultural story of queer people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so this idea that queer people shouldn't be allowed to be around children felt like it was at the core of the gay marriage debates in the early 2000s. And late 90s and to me watching that i was like well all of the people that i know basically are queer and i'm surrounded by so much love it was just so out of touch yeah and so that clarity for me that oh people are having this whole conversation that is has nothing to do with real life made super clear to me the pageantry of politics basically mm-hmm. and the hatred of people that don't know queer people Mm-hmm. Um, relatedly having a brown skinned brother in my same classroom I saw the ways that he was treated differently than I was mm. and part of that is because he was just a different learner because he's a different person and school came more easily to me than it did to him but part of that was systemic racism mm-hmm. and I walked through the world seeing systemic homophobia and sexism and systemic racism every single day in my lived experience because of how other people were talking about me in front of me mm-hmm. and talking about the people that I loved in front of me, that all of that became abundantly clear of like how politics works, mm-hmm. right? And how bias works on the highest level. <clears throat> Maybe I'll pause there. Well, it's okay. So that it dovetails nicely with something that I've been thinking about, which is, I mean, this okay, this is an enormous question, but it, it's related to, or I, I feel like it dovetails with what you're talking about. Something I talked about with my very first interviewee, this friend, the friend of mine who also grew up in Boston, um, who's a, who's a little older than both of us. Uh, something I asked him was like, "How do you feel like growing up in the household you did has shaped you as a person?" And like, obviously, it's an enormous question, but um, I just feel like I, I, and maybe you, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I, I just feel that growing up in the household I did has just like fundamentally shaped my worldview and just like it has I mean like it obviously like the households we grow up in shape all of us no matter who our parents are but I just feel like growing up in a same you know in a household with a queer family like I'm even struggling to find the words like gay same sex but two moms but um it's like growing up in a queer family um it just it's just it's just shaped my psyche and my view of the world like it is just it is like if I had to, if I, if gun to my head, it, I would say it is the absolute fundamental characteristic about me, um, which is just, that's the truth. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on like, you know, I mean, we, it's, it's, we've talked about it in so many different ways, but like, I just would love to know more about how you feel. And you have already shared about how it's shaped your politics has shaped, you know, it's informed your worldview. Um, but like, yeah, I just like, how do you feel that like, how, how has it affected your life in, in many, in, and however you want to interpret that? Oh my God, in so, so, so many ways. I think this is kind of in my mind, so I'm going to say this and then connect it to what you just said. The second piece of the gay marriage debate, again, big air quotes around that, um, that I think is at the core of it, is that gay people, especially of our parents' generation, but still today, 
figured out how to like elbow their enough space around them to be able to live a life that felt authentic to them. Mm-hmm. And that was a brutally difficult thing to do for many, many, many people. And queer people still have to do that. And I think right now in 2023, trans people have to do that a lot, right? And trans kids are the forefront of elbowing their way through a world to say, I need something different than what already exists. And I'm not going to be silenced. And I'm not going to be made to feel ashamed of how I feel and who I am. And that energy in a world and in a culture like kicks open the door of possibility. And that's really deeply threatening for people who need order, stability to be told what to do Mm -hmm. and or have made self-sacrifices in order to be loyal to some cultural dogma or religious dogma, right? So for example, the people that I know who are the most ardent about you can only marry another Jewish person, which to be clear is not that many people (laughs) because I don't really have friends who are getting married anyway. But, But the point being, the people who are the most ardent about that have kind of without fail been in love with someone who wasn't Jewish and ended that relationship for the sake of that cultural pressure, familial pressure. And so they have made some sort of self-sacrifice and then watching other people not make that self-sacrifice is gutting. And so I think queer people, inclusive and predominantly about trans people right now, but it was our parents and queer families in the early 2000s it's really destabilizing to people who aren't ready to be destabilized. Um, And so that's where a lot of the hatred comes from. So how has queerness, being raised in queerness affected me? I think it has given a lot of space in my life to appreciate that like people are making their way the best that they can. Mm. And it has made me feel very passionately about living my life in a way that feels joyful and authentic to me and helping other people do the same. So I obviously went into clinical mental health and I work as a therapist now and I work with kids and I think of my role in the world as a person and professionally is to help people or support people along their journey of figuring out who they are and how they want to live. It's as simple as that. I don't think about diagnoses. I don't think about fixing people. Like, I don't think about any of that. I think about like, how do you elbow some space in the world so that you can live joyfully and authentically? And I think 100% that came from being raised in queerness. So what that's making me think of is like, and something that's been haunting me in this project is like the experience of being a queer person raised by queer people and that just inherent complexity so you know I think it relates to what we were talking about a moment before which you so beautifully articulated is this you know inherent like this cultural sexualization of queerness and it's not a sexualization of queerness it's an assumption that there's something inherently deviantly sexual and deviant about queerness which it you know presents differently for queer men and queer women but I think taints both like there's this you know inherent like association with sex sex of queer people. Um, and I know for me as a child, like that 
I felt an enormous pressure to seem normal by being like, oh, well, I'm straight, I'm straight, I'm straight. Like they might be gay, but I'm not, <laughs> you know? And then obviously as an adult, like coming to understand that that wasn't my truth um, was very challenging. So um, yeah, I don't know, like, the, I don't really have a question, but like, I was hoping we could just kind of talk about like the experience of like being a queer woman raised by queer women. And um, you, I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot, just between the two of us, but if you want to share, um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have a firm question, but I just want to hear more about that. Well, the way that this is manifesting for me recently is, well, first I'll say definitely as a kid, I felt exactly the same way. I felt like I didn't want to be gay because it would be quote unquote proving. Yes, all the rules, right? exactly. Whatever that amorphously meant. I mean, I know exactly what that meant, but like, and when I, when I was growing up, and I would tell people about my mom. Honestly, Annalise, like nine out of 10 times, people's first question was, well, do you think you're going to be gay too? It was like, how is that your first question? Like, are you and- asking that of every other child in America is being raised by straight <laughs> people? Right. Who are many of whom are gay. <laughs> right. And I'm like, you don't want to, or, and then probably the other one out of 10 times was, well, what do you call your moms? You know, that's like, it was like either totally invasive or like mm-hmm. really confused about the logistics. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, first that tracks. <laughs> yes, yes. So both of those are really kind of silly to me, but I would be like, no, it's not, I'm not gay because my mom's okay. But I think the truth of that is that I actually was able to ask myself what my genuine attraction was much earlier mm-hmm. and without as much of the shame as my as my peers did because my parents were gay and yeah. I knew that I would be loved and I would be okay no matter what mm-hmm. but I still felt homophobia yeah of course like deeply you know I didn't I didn't necessarily I didn't not want to be gay but I wasn't like hoping I was going to be gay you know and it still felt very hard for me to come out yeah I still don't always come out I still think about that really thoughtfully yeah um when I started this job this year and I started working with kids I was like like am I going to come out am I going to be out how am I going to talk about my personal life and then I felt like what like how am I having these conversations with myself mm-hmm. and how did I want to figure that out and yeah. anyway so that continues to be an ongoing question, but I certainly felt that pressure as a young person. And now in my current life, I'm 33, I have a long-term partner who's a woman. We have an amazing relationship. And we live in the same city where I grew up, in a house that looks not that different than the house that I grew up in. And I went into the same professional field as my parents went into, right? They were always kind of circling around psychology and education in the mm-hmm. same way that I am. And sometimes I look at myself and I feel this deep-seated shame, discomfort, homophobia of like, did I just replicate what I saw? Have I differentiated myself enough from my parents? Mm. And I think that's only because I'm with a woman, right? And I so don't want to have replicated that. I so want to be my own person. Um, And I talk about this with my sister a lot because she lives with us. And she's just like, oh my God, your relationship is so different than our mom's relationship was. And it is, it is. 
Um, and I see that. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't guess I don't know exactly how to put it into words. I don't think I've quite, quite tried yet. It just makes me feel uncomfortable on some level. Mm -hmm. And I want to be thought of as my own person. Isn't it interesting that like, I would just, I can't imagine heterosexual people would ever be anxious about that with regard to the sex of their partner. You know what I mean? Like heterosexual people every day on this, in this world, go on to marry people and replicate that same dynamic in their relationships and don't think twice about it. Right. I mean, I think like that, that worry speaks to your inherent sensitivity to the world and your curiosity and your desire to be to live a fully formed life on your own terms but it's just so interesting you know I'm almost like hearing you say that is almost like I'm just like oh that's so unfair that you even have to worry about that because you shouldn't I mean and I think you think about it like I said because you're an extremely thoughtful caring person but um yeah, it's just like another, it's like an additional burden, right? Or it's like one more layer of things to have to grapple with that like straight people don't have to worry about. I think that's really true. I think that's really, really true. Yeah. So it's interesting because like, I feel like I'm experiencing the inverse of that because I live with a man and um, I feel like I, being in a, really, a very you know, intense long-term relationship with this man, like I've had no point of reference for it. So I almost feel like it's been kind of like, it's like the inverse of what a lot of gay people probably experience when they, or, okay, I can't know. Right. But I'm, I'm imagining that like, if I had been raised in a household where I had heterosexual parents and then I was in a gay relationship, I might feel a sense of like, what should this look like? Because I don't have a clear model for it that was, you know, I don't have a clear intimate lived model for this. Like I might have seen it in the movies or like know people in gay relationships, but I haven't lived it myself. For me, I'm experiencing the inverse. Like I grew up in a household with only women where my moms had this like incredible partnership and like, you know, lived and loved each other extremely intentionally. And I it, like, you know, it's like, it sounds a little gender essentialist. It's, you know, that's not what I'm getting at. Like, oh, it's fundamentally different to be with a man. It's not that. It's just that like, I've never grew up with men and I didn't really grow up around a lot of men. And I, uh, living with a man is a really different experience. Like, you know, my partner grew up in a heterosexual family and carries that, um, carries that, I was going to say trauma, <laughs> carries those challenges um, and those, you know, li learned and lived ways of being that I don't. And so it's just really interesting. It's just been kind of like a, I don't know, it's like, it's just fascinating to like share a life with someone in a way that looks literally the opposite from my experience of growing up with my mom. So it's, it's funny. I feel like I've had like the mirror image of what you're sharing um, and like, obviously like comes with its own challenges, but like, I feel like for me, what is actually more um the thing that kind of weighs on me more is like the invisibleness of my queerness, you know, which is like every, every, every bisexual femme in America is like, <laughs> no one, you know, it's like bisexual femmes think they're like the most oppressed group in America. Um, and I always, I, it's because it's like, I recognize it in myself and I'm like, you guys need to be quiet. But because um, I recognize the impulse, but like, you know, like being a bisexual woman in a relationship with a man, um, you know, I could, I could just, I could just let people assume I'm straight all the day as long. And so like, that's my sort of, you know, challenge, obviously it pales in comparison to the 
challenge of navigating a visibly queer relationship and the danger and violence and harm that can come from you in that regard. But it does suck. I mean, it's kind of annoying, right? Yeah. Um, well, and at least like you were just saying, and I agree with you on this, that having queer parents is pretty much the defining shape of your life, right? And then you've made moves within that, but that's kind of the shape of the yeah. person that you've become. And I really agree with that. And as kids, everybody knew our parents, right? Because you and I had very involved, very loving parents. Your parents were probably a little more involved than mine were, but <laughs> but that's just a personality thing. But anyway, the point being, we had these like involved, loving parents. And so everybody knew that we had queer parents on mm-hmm. some level. Even if you were in LA and you were hiding it, mm-hmm. even if I was kind of being careful about where I talked about it. Mm-hmm. All my friends knew because they would mm-hmm. come over. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I would I would talk about it because at that time of our lives, we were more defined by our parents anyway. Mm-hmm. And we were associated with them. And we went out in public with them. And then when we get older, we become individual people. And like people aren't asking us about our parents yeah. in the same way that kids are. So true. And so I grew up, and despite being with men for 10 years I'm now in a committed relationship with a woman and committed relationship that felt like (laughs) you're old you're old (laughs) you're aging yourself (laughs) I really am and I've never said that but now that my boo is a woman it's like that gets to be a visible part of me again and actually being raised queer is not a visible part of me that remains invisible for the mm. most part and that remains invisible for you and you don't have the visibility of being in a queer relationship yep. so I still get to talk about being queer all the time and like mm. at school queer kids come to me because they know that I'm a queer faculty right I love or that. Like when, a, when a colleague recently came out she was like can we talk about gay stuff over one <laughs> right and she sees me as yeah. someone that she talked to about that I love that only because of who my partner is. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to be a part of those same, you don't get to be assumed to be a part of those same conversation mm-hmm. that I do. And honestly, I feel for you about that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's made me, well, yeah. And it's kind of given me an opportunity to be more intentional. And not that you're not like it's given me, it's 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 a privilege in that I have the choice, right? I get I get to choose whether and when to come out and in what context, right? In a way that like people in visibly queer relationships do not, right? So I recognize that. I think that's like, that's something that like queer, like bisexual women, like just don't want to admit, right? That like, it is a it, like, th- there's countervailing forces. Like it sucks to have your queerness erased, but because we live in a violent homophobic society, it's also a privilege, right? Like it's a, it's two sides of the same coin. Um but it is interesting. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I don't have to navigate that in the same way. It's so true. I mean, you put it so well, like as a child, our agency was kind of removed from us with regard to disclosure, right? We did not get to choose always when to share about our families. Now in adulthood, that is largely our choice, right? Save certain kind of weird circumstances where it comes up, right? Um, but that is like, that, that to me is like a real fundamental shift that's occurred in my life is like the ability to I guess almost like yeah feel like I have more agency or let it the the freedom to let it be my choice when I share um it is interesting though it's almost I I almost feel like a little sense of like oh like I should be more loud and proud about this (laughs) you know like 
uh just because like as a kid it's like you already don't have agency because like we treat children we don't give children agency in this country Mm -hmm. um and then to like be you know growing up in this homophobic these homophobic environments either passively or actively homophobic um yeah like it's interesting because like I just I feel so fundamentally different about my relationship with my moms and my rearing that was an adult than I did when I was a kid and I think it has to do with that agency piece so much sense and I think that's also like so developmental right like everybody our age now feels differently about their relationship with their parents than they did when they were 4 10 18 mm-hmm. um and so there's a way and this is a conversation I have with my mom a lot there's a way that like people are just people and growing up is just growing up mm-hmm. right and being queer being straight being female being whatever is um it's certainly not irrelevant but it's not like the defining feature right i would say the defining feature of my relationship with my parents now is that we love each other and we go through life in relationship with each other because that's what we've chosen to do we've chosen to have that closeness with each Mm other um it's not that any of us are queer Mm-hmm. or that any of us are white and my brother is not or that mm-hmm. we're Jewish or any of those identity pieces that shapes the way that we get to walk through the world but like the core kind of most like metaphysical ultimate truth of that is like the love mm-hmm. of our families anyway I got kind of put off base but it just it, it's making me think of a conversation with my mom with when I was doing this interview project and my mom was like, well, you know, in many ways, we really just were like a normal family. And forgive the like sloppiness of like the normal language. No, no, no. I get it. <laughs> right. But that was a moment for me when I was like, well, in some ways that's true. Right. I had two parents. They both had jobs. They owned their home. There were three kids in the family. Like we looked like an upper middle class American family mm-hmm. in many, many ways. And we just happened to have to adult women living there instead of a dad. Um, But in other ways, that moment exposed to me how much my mom felt like, well, what was so different about it? And for me, it had been this like defining characteristic of my upbringing and continues to be a shape of my life. And she just didn't get that. Mm. Um, Which I think is generational because she didn't grow up she has never had the experience that I have even yep. though she was the parent of the family yep oh I relate to that so much Sammy like I I remember you know the or I, I don't have a clear memory of it but I can recall conversations with my moms maybe when I was in college like you know early adulthood where I not even kind of realizing you know was referencing the difficulty and challenge of growing up in having my moms be my moms and my parents almost being like offended. Like what? Like what was so like we, you know, for, cause I mean, because fundamentally they, like you said, they have a different experience. Like they don't know what it's like to grow up with two moms because they, they grew up in hetero families. And it's so interesting because it makes me think like, you know, how different things are going to be in the next 50 years, God willing, they don't know exterminate us all by then um for for people raised by queers who may go on to raise their own children in queer relationships like that is you know the intergenerationality of it is is suddenly possible 
Whereas it never, it almost never was before, or if it was, it was like so isolated and secret that it, you know, we don't have good information on it, but um, yeah, it is interesting. Like just this, I mean, that's part of why in doing this project, like I'm so eager to talk to my moms um, because I think there is a, just a, like you said, a fundamentally different experience for them raising us as us being raised by them. And, and obviously the challenges and homophobia that they experienced was very distinct, right? But we were also present for that. So I think that's like a real complexity here that I had. Just like being the child of queers is just such a like, such a unique phenomenon in the scope of human history. And or like even just in the scope of like the modern, like modernity in the West, right? So I don't know. I just like, I'm just, I don't have anything articulate to say about it. It's just like, it's just like, I can't know what it's like to have been raised by heterosexuals. And it's just a fundamentally different experience of the world. And I imagine, I mean, I don't want to equate them, but it, it is perhaps it's how people feel who are raised by single parents or raised in really raised by grandparents, raised by people who are not their biological parents. I mean, I think any deviation from what we consider normative, right? Like a mother and a father, both of whom you are biologically related to, who raised you your whole life and are married is like the ideal and anything that isn't that you know, gets relegated to the side and seen as strange. Um, so I guess like anyone raised in a family that doesn't conform to that, I imagine feels some sense of marginalization and difference, but like, there's just something unique about the gay piece. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that there's deeply something unique about the gay piece in part because our gay parents in many ways emulated a heterosexual ideal. And so just like living with that and sitting with that, right? Because there's all these ways that I feel like being raised by gay parents was so radical and such a divergence. And then in other ways, I'm like, oh, you guys actually didn't diverge that much literally at all. You just were in love with each other and still wanted to have kids and yeah. raise us in a particular way. Um, and I think that this gets into race pretty quickly and socioeconomic status pretty quickly because being able even to live in a unit with just two adults raising kids is an economic privilege. Yep. <laughs> like bar none, that is just like the new American fantasy, right? That we get to live like that. Um, and this idea that a nuclear family is still a valuable social unit mm -hmm. is still a reverence for and um like acquiescence to or even acceptance for as its most neutral this familial unit that was built to empower men you know and to and and effectively keeps people isolated like there's all these things about the nuclear family unit that's my biggest critique yep. and so I think what's different about our parents is of course there's been gay parents for as long as there have been parents yeah right as long as there have been human beings being born some of their parents have been gay and or sleeping with people who yep. have similar bodies to them regardless of identity um but what was new about our parents' generation is that they wanted to do so while looking like, yes. quote unquote, a mainstream American ideal. Yep. And that makes a ton of sense to me because 
it's hard to always be different. <laughs> it's hard to always be different. And um, there's a lot of stability in that family unit. You get social recognition in mm-hmm. that family unit. Whereas like single moms, I think are still like swimming upstream. Absolutely. All the time. Absolutely. Um, and, and certainly single dads are like, feel like kind of like unicorns in the mist mm-hmm. like do they exist uh which of course they do but anyway or people raised by their grandparents aunts and uncles like mm-hmm. you're saying um and I think of that transition I don't think that we can think about that queer transition into the nuclear family ideal without talking about HIV and AIDS mm-hmm. and the devastation in our community that was wrought by that disease and the parents, the extended families who came in and took all of the resources and the homes of the partners of mm-hmm. their children who had passed. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it makes sense after a community was decimated, I mean, just destroyed by this disease, not only in numbers and losses, but also psychologically. Yes. And in terms of identity of what it meant to be gay, that totally shifted because of HIV and AIDS. And then for the loss of actual material possessions and the stability of home and community, it makes so much sense to me that the response to that with legal recourse to say, I need to have my family Mm -hmm. legally recognized Mm -hmm. by the law. So that makes a lot of sense to me and the most radical part of my heart and spirit, like, oh, but why are all these gay people caring about marriage? You know, then I go back to my mom. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm just taking a second to process it. It's just um, something I really struggle with is how like, how to talk about queer life. I mean, okay, let me rephrase. Sometimes I am saddened by the fact that like we can't talk I I do believe we can't talk about and reckon with queer existence without talking about AIDS. And sometimes that makes me sad because I, I just think like, can we have nothing? Can we not can we can we not suffer for a moment? Right. Or I, I you know, I, but I, I also don't want to reject our extremely recent history, right? Like my uncle died of HIV when I was four years old, HIV related complications. Um it's obviously like well with it. People die of HIV all the time. People live really well with HIV too, right? But um, something that it, it's just something that I sometimes I'm just like, God, can we have no peace, right? Can we not just talk about queer joy and peace and celebration and life? That's so interesting to me. Just this week, Jesse and I we've had this conversation before, but I was like, Jesse, we got to write wills. We gotta write wills. I know. This is not this is not looking good. And my grandmother having just died, and I'm mm-hmm. just like kind of on that track. And both of our families know what we are to each other. And mm-hmm. I don't think we contest yeah. the other one, like owning the house, for example. Yeah, yeah. But I'm like, I don't want anyone to get in the fight. I don't want anyone to have any questions. Yep. Like everything that's mine will just be yours. And then I'm like, ew, capitalism is the worst. Like like, why do I even have an estate or net worth or any of this, right? Like, like the whole premise is disgusting to me. 
And this also, now I'm kind of losing, I'm not going in the most sequential order, but this also feels very Jewish to me mm. because I do not want to get married. Um, in part because I was raised in this radical way and like marriage was never something that my parents talked about, but also because I'm like, why in the world would I want to put my name on a registry as a gay person? I totally get that. Like, that's just hardcore Jewish trauma from start to end. And yeah. there's, I'm just not going to do it. Um, but save that, then we need to use other legal yeah. tools at our yep. disposal and yep. like, just write the will. Yep. Not in the Jewish context, but my mom has said the verbatim what you just said. But this was before my parents were legally married, like, you know, a long time ago. They've gotten legally married twice because... I'll tell you, it's a long story, but uh, like, you know, back when it was legal in some states and not others. Um, but my mom, you know, when domestic partnerships became available to same-sex couples in Washington state, Denise was like, why would I put my name on a list of gay people Honestly. so they can track me? And I totally get it. Like, and I, and I know lots of other queer people felt the same, like contemplating the future and talking about what we talked about a bit ago and thinking about like this, just extremely concerning hostile climate that we're in and thinking about like how to protect ourselves like you know navigating the tension between protecting ourselves and living our values like how has it made you feel in the past year with this just like you know emergence of these really scary state legislatures coming for I mean largely coming for trans people like you said but but also eagerly trying to ban drag which is like so clearly unconstitutional but whatever um yeah like I guess for me I I ask because and I shared about this a couple weeks ago but like it's and it like you know after Trump was elected I was like extremely concerned about the state of my relationship with my moms in that I was you know there was I don't recall what exactly what it was and blocked it out but like there was chatter about, you know, reversing gay adoptions and reversing gay marriages and, you know, whatever the Republicans felt was on their agenda for that day. Uh, and it scared the shit out of me because I was like, you know, it sort of revealed my privilege to me that I was like, wow, I haven't really thought about that much. You know, I've experienced this homophobia and, and homophobia directed at my family, but I've never really worried that like someone would come in and like wave a wand and like abolish our legal relationship to one another. Um that all changed in 2016. And again, the past few months and weeks, even I've been really concerned about it. Um, practically, I don't really think, or actually, I shouldn't even speculate. We just don't know, right? So I'm curious if, you know, if if that's brought up feelings or worries for you in the past few months, year, um, just with this, you know, emergent, even more hostile climate. Yeah, I love that question. Well, that makes me think about the privilege of being biologically related to one of my mm. parents and the fact that my parents never took any steps to full adopt us. They had wills saying mm. if something were to happen to one of us, my partner is the sole parent for mm -hmm. our kids. But they never, that that was that. That was a document that they only knew about between them and their lawyer. Mm. So your, your mom, who you're not biologically related to, is not on your birth certificate? No. Interesting. No, she never co-adopted me. Um, in part because it wasn't legal in the state of Massachusetts until I was already seven or something, um, which is still pretty young. But my moms were just like, we have this figured out in this other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I'm painting the picture that they're kind of like legally averse. Um, yeah. And 
Um, so that's highlighting that for me is like my brother is, first of all, we're all in our thirties now, but my brother is solely adopted by one parent. And then mm -hmm. my sister and I are biologically related to my other parents. So mm -hmm. I don't have to live with that fear. Mm -hmm. Um, so just sitting with that. And I'm like, so sorry that you had to feel that mm -hmm. even being over 18. I mean, that's, a Oh no, exactly. Yeah. But still, yeah. It's a horrible feeling. Um, and it gets back to the dehumanization of that, like, you are an actual person with an actual relationship with your family and that someone who doesn't know you or give a shit about you could wave a wand and your life could change forever and they would not even give a fuck. Mm -hmm. They would be happy, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it, it satisfied some amorphous, hateful urge within their own spirit but has nothing to do with actual people. Or they, they would not be able to personalize it to an actual yep. person and you yep. are the real person so that's just like so gross i'm so sorry um in terms of how i feel about how the country is going it's very deeply scary to me i live in basically constant existential dread about the state of our country and more so about the state of like that we're running out of water that like california is actually going to run out of water this summer and Everyone's just buying things on Amazon. I live in every single second of every day is like constant grief about that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I live in dread so much anymore because I've resigned myself or because I've moved into the grief. Yeah. And that just feels like a healthier place for me to mm -hmm. live than the But anyway, so there's that. Um, and I feel so inoculated from this because I live in Boston. Yeah. And in Massachusetts, yep. which is so protective. Yep, I feel similarly. Right, and so I don't, I don't really have to think about that in a way. And there's so much privilege in that. And I'm not leaving Boston anytime soon. Like I don't want to get out of that little bubble. That bubble is safe and beautiful, and respects me and respects my family. And so that's where I want to be. Um. That being said, I work in high school, and like so 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 many of the kids who go to the school are trans mm -hmm. and queer and i just want to give them a big hug i know and so that's what i try and do i try and show up every single day and use the pronouns that they ask me to use and ask them what do you want me to call you at school how do you want me to refer to you when i talk to your parents and modeling that the world is antagonistic to them but individual people are not always going to be antagonistic to them and actually mm -hmm. just like loving their young trans joy. Mm -hmm. And so that's first, that's how I try and live with it. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad they have you. I'm so glad I have them. And I'm so glad that they have me too. You know, it goes, it goes in every direction. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that they have their parents for the most part, right? Like the kids that I get to work with are loved by their parents mm -hmm. and supported by their parents. Mm -hmm. Hearing you say that, I have two thoughts. One is that, like, it speaks to the fact that, like, the experience of queerness in this country is so impacted by region and so imp it's obviously impacted by, like, and, like, region is impacted by socioeconomic status and, and access to wealth, right? But, like, I was just talking to my godparents. I interviewed them. And, like, they were just saying how, like, they can't, you know, they were like, we feel pretty safe here in Seattle. But, like, I can't imagine what it's like to be a gay person in a red state, a really red state with kids, right? Or just to be a gay person in a red state, period. Um, 
and I mean, yeah, I feel like what you're saying is like, it's, it's so speaks to like, there's not good data on this, but it just makes me so curious, like thinking about our age and like other children of queers, like, I don't, it's not coincidence that you grew up in Boston and I grew up outside of Seattle, right? Like, you know, like there was, there's obviously like a regionalism hugely impacts your access to resources, your literal like ability to, you know, make your life look like the way you want it to. So, which is a tragedy in that it's, you know, it's unevenly distributed across this country. It's really interesting. You're, you saying that is making me think about growing up with my moms when we lived in California, which, you know, it was the first time I experienced like really open hostility toward my family on a wider scale. My mom would say things like, and I was also one of the only like, you know, liberal kids in my high school, which didn't help. And um, my mom would say like, you know what, you're not going to be able to change everyone's mind, but you can, you can lead by example. Or she didn't use that word, but she was like, if you act and speak and say the things that you think are right, you might not change everyone's mind, but you're going to model that behavior. And like, maybe you'll change some people's minds, or at least you'll show them a different way of of living. You'll show them a different way of being in the world. And I think about that. I think it's so relevant when you think about like, even just like thinking about our families, like even just existing, like your moms were doing that passively and probably actively by just like living their truth, right. And making the family they wanted to have, they, even with what we've talked about with like, you know, the complexities of the tension between wanting to live your queer truth and, you know, replicating the heterosexual family, like that aside, your moms clearly wanted to have a family in a way that they wanted to, like they, they had a vision for what they wanted their lives to look like and what they wanted to have, a, how they wanted to have a family and just like living and being, just living their damn lives. It was in a way modeling that change, you know, like being the change, if you will, right? Like leading by example. Uh, and I think about it a lot in my context as my moms and I, because, you know, when we moved to California, people would say, the, they would be like, oh, I've never met a gay person before. My moms would be like, um okay you're 45 but okay (laughs) like that's kind of weird um okay uh but you know like that you know just I just even just us existing and being in our community was impactful in the sense that it showed other people like a different way a different possibility um and I just feel like I got this email in my mid-20s, this Facebook message. And again, I went to high school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, okay? Like, I cannot think of any more quintessentially liberal place. Maybe, like, the West Village in New York. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and maybe San Francisco and Seattle. But anyway, I got this message from this guy that I went to high school with. And I hadn't talked to him in 10 years or something. And he had just gotten married. And he said... Sammy, I have to write to you and tell you that I'm getting married this month and it's in part thanks to you that I'm able to be in an openly gay relationship and have this beautiful wedding and celebrate all this. He was like, you were the first person and one of the only people I've ever met that felt so open about talking about your queer parents. And he didn't even talk about me being gay. Like, I don't even know if he knew that. But just about me being open about my family, I was like, that was so moving to me and also kind of sobering to me that even 10 years later without us talking, he was still thinking about me at 15, talking about my parents. So I know that that change is so regional and that the ripple of that can feel small. But I really believe, and maybe this is like a coping strategy too, like how to live in a violent world. But I really believe that when we live 
authentically and when we speak up for what we believe in in whatever communities we're privileged to take part in that that makes a difference like that is the most concrete powerful way that i have found to be able to partake in honestly even a political process Mm -hmm. and certainly a social a process of social change you know i've written letters i've done door knocking i've called people before elections like i've done that stuff and i don't think any of it is as effective as building relationships with people Mm -hmm. and changing their minds through conversation and openness and authenticity Mm -hmm. for me i should say for me and it matters to people like i think especially people who have had to feel secretive over their lives Mm -hmm. i i feel so blessed and privileged to have to be articulate to be an extroverted person Mm -hmm. to have lived in a place where i felt safe and to have had moms who taught who never taught me to have shame about myself Mm -hmm. ever i don't even know if they did this consciously but i feel like the lineage that they gave to me was always speak up about who you are or Mm -hmm. speak proudly about who you are because it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about mm-hmm. you. And they gave me the tools to be able to do that in really indirect, potentially subconscious ways. I don't mm-hmm. know, you'd have to ask them if they did that thoughtfully or purposely. Um, so this is totally apropos of not what we were talking about, but just to think about briefly, like something I find really interesting and I wonder if this has happened to you is like, in adulthood, when I started spending more time with other queers, like peers, queer peers, um, and I, and I would share about my moms, I would have this funny experience where like other queers would be like, oh my God, tell me everything. Cause they, it was almost like, they were like, oh, how cool. That's a possibility. That's what I want my future to look like. I want to know all about it. And it is a unique experience for most people, most kids growing up in America who are of our generation to grow up around a lot of gay people. It, it is a unique experience. Like the majority, you know, deeply. Like, and, and in a way that makes now in adulthood, other queers almost like envious, which is so oh funny to me. It was 100%. So this is like, I'm the most uh, kind of like innocuous level. Once I had friends that started coming out, they just wanted to be around my house, right? They just felt <laughs> they felt like they could be themselves. They felt yeah. like it was so cool that I knew gay people. If nine times out of 10 people are asking me if I'm going to be gay too, probably 10 times out of 10 people are like, oh, that's so cool that you're gay moms. And I'm like, yeah, it is. But also it's not like objectively cool. You know what I mean? They're just people. Yeah. <laughs> Super cool. <laughs> um, but okay. So when I first shared the audio from the Gathering Voices Project, at like gatherings at my house, say there's like 70 people in. I got letters from friends afterwards and had tearful conversations with friends afterwards saying, I didn't realize how much internalized homophobia I was still carrying until I heard these stories. They were like, I thought that it wouldn't be fair of me to have kids and put Mm. them through this until I listened to this project. Wow. And I was like, oh, honey, have all the kids you want. Wow. Right? Like people are living with that shame. Mm-hmm. People are living with it for real. Trans kids, gay kids are still mm-hmm. feeling like under attack, like they're not going to be loved by their parents mm-hmm. in Boston. And part of that is a political climate. And part of that is because sexism has not gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. It has just changed shape. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really powerful. Or like I had friends who, when they came out, 
And then their parents, heterosexual parents, so sad. Like, I always wanted to have grandkids. And then my friends got to say to their parents, well, you've met Sammy. I can still have kids. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, great. If I can be, if I can be that, like, stepping stone in this story for your family, I'm happy totally, to do it. Totally. So I'm curious, like, if you feel, do you feel like your mom's built a community for you? Um, well, most of her friends were gay mm-hmm. and I had two aunts who had a child. Mm-hmm. Um, she was younger than me. So I felt different than her in some ways. You know, I mm-hmm. felt like older, which probably I'm like two years older, but that felt yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you were big as a kid. Yeah, totally. Um, so she was a little bit more of my sister's friend. Um, and other than that, my mom had tons of gay friends, but none of them had kids. Mm-hmm. And so actually, like, when we went on vacation and we're hanging out with family friends, we were usually the only kids there. Mm-hmm. Um, and now as an adult, I'm like, damn, moms, that was, like, wild that you did that. But then, as I think most parents do, they make friends with their kids' yeah. classmates. Totally, parents. totally, yes. So I was surrounded by tons of kids, but all of their parents were heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was really different for me because I had siblings. Yeah, totally. Like, so through doing the interview project, I've met lots of people who had, like, gaby groups and were taken from the time they were infants to oh. these gatherings. And my mom would have never done that. My yeah, mom's like, same. Oh, <laughs> my, mom's are, my moms aren't participators. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, your mom's go home at 6 p.m. from dinner. Yeah, like, yeah I definitely. Totally get the vibe. 100%. <laughs> totally get the vibe. And my moms are the same. They would be like, what? Why would I do that? You know, my mom was like, I want to paint. I want to listen to music or whatever they were doing. It was not that. Um, one, one time... Now I'm kind of riffing on this, but so my mom runs an adoption agency. And when we were teenagers, we went to family week in P-Town, but not to family week. We just happened to be on the Cape at the same time as family week was happening. My mom never would have gone to family week. Um, Again, because they're not participators. Um, But one of my mom's clients was hosting this gathering at her house of gay parents who had adopted children from Guatemala. Oh, interesting. My brother adopted from Guatemala. So she was like, let's all go to this for the afternoon. And that was really amazing because my brother, first of all, is like 6'1", and he's like a big dude. And all of these other kids were 10 years younger than us. Like the oldest kid was maybe five. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, the gay boom had kind of like picked up speed. Mm -hmm. And, um, what was amazing was seeing so many other kids who looked like my brother and having these kids look at someone maybe for the first time who looked like them, mm-hmm. but was basically an adult or looked yep. like an adult because he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And then having these other gay parents, many of whom are white, but not all of them, see my brother as someone that their kids might grow up to look mm-hmm. like. I'm so grateful to Sammy for making the time to speak with me and to share her brilliance with all of us. 
For my next conversation with another child of queer parents, tune in to the next episode. Until next time.